This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. TikTok is the devil. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's outstanding panel, returning to the roundup, does he even need an introduction? Senior advisor at the California Latino Economic Institute, my fellow co-founder, The Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at USC. The one and only Mike Madrid. Uh, how you doing, Mike? I'm doing great. No, I do not need an introduction, but I'm glad that you gave it to listeners just to remind them that I'm back. I wonder if we should start reminding them about the book you're writing in in this introduction. No, high Um, blood pressure starting. No, 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 not yet. Not yet. Go time. Okay. Okay. All right. I I won't do that to you just yet. Also returning to the roundup is Liz Gilbert Cohen. Liz is a political and government affairs specialist based in Park City, Utah. She's a former executive director of the New Jersey Democratic Party, an alum of Governor Phil Murphy's 2017 campaign. And she has worked on the past three DNC national conventions, most recently as president of the 2020 DNC. Liz, as always, great to see you. Welcome back. Great to see you, Ron. Thanks for having me again. And joining us for our lead segment today, Donna Riddell. Donna was the managing director of the World Economic Forum. And she was the first woman to chair U.S. Exchange, the Commodities Exchange. She is also a New York City-based advisor and investor focusing on fintech, blockchain, and emerging technologies. Donna also developed and teaches a course on blockchain, crypto, digital assets at Fordham Law School and the Fordham Gabelli Business School. She's also taught at the Wharton School at Penn and her alma mater, Columbia. Her JD is from Fordham Law School, and she has an MBA from Columbia. Donna, welcome to the Roundup. I know you've been on Politicology before, but uh, it's great to have you as a subject matter expert today. Uh, Great. Thanks for inviting me again, and I'm really happy to be here. So first, we're going to discuss the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, what they could mean for the banking and crypto industries, and how it's shaping the political debate. Then we'll talk about a former TikTok employee sharing their concerns about data security with Congress and the Biden administration's move to force a sale of that Chinese-owned app. Finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we're going to take a look at Ron DeSantis' claim that the support for Ukraine isn't vital to national interest and the ongoing fight over support for Ukraine within the Republican Party. To get ad-free access to the show, plus a catalog of additional episodes like the Politicology Plus conversation we're about to have, Click the link in the show notes for politicology.com slash plus or navigate to the Politicology show in the Apple Podcasts app and tap the button there that says try free. We'll dive in right after this. On Friday, Silicon Valley Bank became the largest bank to fail since the 2008 financial crisis. In the middle of last week, SVB revealed that it had sold about $21 billion of its securities portfolio at a $1.8 billion loss to cover an increase in withdrawals. 
They also announced that they were just issuing $2.25 billion of shares to raise more money. And taken together, the sale and the fundraising made customers nervous, and it resulted in a run on the bank. By Friday, SVB was in freefall, and the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, also known as FDIC, announced that it would take over the 40-year-old bank after SVB tried and failed to secure a buyer. And this put about $175 billion in customer deposits under the control of the FDIC. And just for context, the FDIC uh, deposit insurance covers up to $250,000 per account, but 94% of the deposits roughly at SVB were uninsured because of the size of the deposits. So Donna, those are the top line details about what happened. We have a whole lot more news about this. And I wonder... If you can talk about what's going on under the hood here that allowed SVB to collapse so quickly, and then maybe we can tease out some of the misunderstandings and bad reporting uh, that have led to a lot of confusion about what's happening now. As we all may remember, in 2008, there was a crisis, a crisis uh, that was stemmed from the housing crisis, but of course, infiltrated the banking system, the financial institutions, et cetera. And there were a number of, of, of rules and regulations um, that were passed subsequently to this, um, some of it which, of course, affected regional banks, of which both um, Silvergate, uh, uh, Signature, and Silicon Valley are. Notice they all start with S. So, so, and also just remember in 2008, as a consequence of some of what went on in the financial markets, Bitcoin was born. So just keep that parked on, on the left-hand side. So we live in a very um, fast communication age. In 2008, in order to withdraw uh, $62 billion from a bank, there'd be a lot of people standing in a line. A couple of people would be able to call their customer representatives. Things would be slow. wouldn't happen fast. That's not today. So we had the, the merger of all of these kinds of issues come to bear. Remember, we also have been raising, not only in the U.S., but overseas, interest rates in the last year plus, and that affects banks. Let's talk about how it affects banks. Banks, notoriously, they have short-term deposits. So people come, they put their money in the bank. You assume that whenever you want to take your money out of the bank, you do either a wire transfer, an ACH, you go to the bank, you take, you write a check, however you do that. On the other side, the bank invests the money that people give to it. We all know that that's what they do. A lot of the people, in order to get higher rates, i.e. Uh, Silicon Valley and other banks, they invested in longer dated, and they were mostly um, uh, um, mortgage-backed mortgage -backed, uh, types of securities, and they were longer dated. As Powell and others were raising the interest rates, those, those investments went down in value on their face value. If held to the very end of the maturity, they would be worth, if you paid 100 cents, they'd be worth 100 cents. But if you needed the money in order to be able to pay your depositors who were rapidly either asking for wire transfers or standing at your front door, you needed to sell them or you know, maybe you could have asked to borrow against them, but let's assume you needed to sell them. And if you sold them, that would be at a loss. So you would book a loss, but of course, you wouldn't have had the full value of what everybody um, had given you to hold for them. And so that was the crisis that occurred. So people were asking for their money faster than it could be given to them. And secondarily, 
even if it could all be given to them, the value of the securities that they had due to market conditions had gone down. Ironically, of course, as the Fed in the last couple of days has allowed interest rates to go down, of course, these are worth a little bit more. Um, So that's basically where we are. There was also a little bit of cheerleading that went on from a number of people. Um, You know, A, uh, I'll call her out, Senator Warren was, you know, gleeful um, that a number of these banks were having problems. and, And some people think she instigated, which is instigating a bank run is a crime in the United States. Most people don't get prosecuted for it, but it is such. Um, and also a number of the big VCs that had um, uh, money in, in Silicon Valley as well as some of their their uh, companies that they invested in encouraged and even went on CNBC um, uh, and, 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 and told the, the, everybody to get their money out. You know, the door is very small when everybody wants their money out. So that's where we were in that situation. Um, I know there was a debate whether it should or shouldn't be, quote, bailed out. Um, but we're not looking at whether the stockholders were bailed out or the bondholders. The management will leave the management and some of the bad things that they did aside for the moment. Um, but we're basically saying if you put your money in a bank in the United States, um, whether you're a person or a corporation, should you be able to feel confident that that would come out? Now, we also saw um, as this was unfolding at at Silicon Valley Bank, um, we had already seen some problems at Silvergate, and there were many rumors about other banks. We'll just leave them unmentioned for the time being. Um, uh, there were rumors about that, and so people were also starting to take their money and standing in line with wire transfers to do that. So I'll stop for a second and see if you have any questions on that, Rob. The one thing I think I'd love for you to speak to is specifically around the word uh, bailout um, and the difference between uh, 2008 and what we have now with the context of the White House claiming uh, and the president claiming uh, no taxpayer dollars are being used in um, uh, in the fill in the word that is not bailout for for essentially guaranteeing depositor funds here the FDIC stepping in what are they doing to cover that and and how true and how should we interpret the um the the line from the administration about this not being a bailout so i'm sure there're banking people that are experts that'll say this more properly or might chime in you know with comments uh, along the way in this in this podcast um So the FDIC is not taxpayers' money. It comes from taxes on the banks. And now you might extrapolate and say, if I have an account at the bank, I pay some fees, et cetera, et cetera. So therefore, I'm, quote, taxed by the bank. But we all know that banks are rent rent seekers. I have an account there. They charge me for stuff. Um, Maybe the more money I have, the less they charge me, but they use my money and I know that that's the trade-off. They charge me for checks or they charge me for wire transfers or anything else like that. That is where the money for the FDIC comes. So it's not taxpayer per se, meaning the government doesn't take it from your taxes and put it in a fund. Very different from 2008, where there was taxholder money that was taken, invested in these various institutions, and albeit most 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 of them, if not all of them, created a good return for the taxpayers. Now, we're not saying that things could have been, it could have gone the other way and it could have been a bad return as well. 
So I view this, not everybody, but I view this as very different from 2008 because we were trying to change the confidence level of what's going on. Little different than what's going on in Switzerland in the the bank backstopping, you know, the entire the entire bank uh, of 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 Credit Suisse. But I want to bring in one other aspect, which is really important in the Silicon Valley Bank situation, and the aspect is that Circle, which is the the biggest U.S. stablecoin issuer, had three billion of their let's say it's about 8% um, of their cash at Silicon Valley Bank. Now, the difference between Circle and Silicon Valley Bank or any bank is it operates 24 by 7. And yet, you, and, and yet as we know, right now, the banking system operates five days a week, not counting if you have a holiday, and it doesn't operate on the weekends. And so stable, this Circle, all of a sudden, was everybody knew was down in terms of liquidity over $3 billion. Now, the assumption being that ultimately the liquidity would be there and Circle made some statements to make people feel more comfortable. But as a consequence of this, it depegged, meaning it left the dollar peg for a period of time um, and then it went back up, but it left the, it for a period of time. It is fully backed by cash and by U.S. treasuries. The reason I bring this up is because, one, I think it's a very serious issue because this whole Silvergate, Silicon Valley, et cetera, has re-energized the conversation about central bank digital currencies. And I think that that's a whole nother show that you can do, but I just want to point in that this is an, a, a, a conversation that has many, many, many um, legs and policy issues around it, but it's there. And also the, the st- circle um, situation called into uh, you know, the foreground again, the fact that we don't have for digital assets a regulatory framework that is, that is even new and clearly one that's not workable at all because it is not reimagined what's going on. So I'll stop there. Yeah, that's a really important point. I've mentioned uh, central bank digital currencies, also known as CBDCs, before on the podcast, but really just tangentially. We haven't done a show on it. And just for listeners to access what you just said, that is the idea of a digital dollar. And that doesn't mean a digital representation of a dollar, as you might see in your bank account, but rather a cryptocurrency that is run by the government in the same way that China has a digital currency, the digital yuan, which enables them to essentially surveil and track everything that that dollar is used for in real time, um, just as a starting place. So when Donna says it's re-energized the conversation about CBDCs, we're talking about the U.S. considering developing its own CBDC to replace the the dollar we have now. Um, so with that context. Um, Mike, do you want to lead off? I'm curious about how how you're thinking about all of this. Um, as Donna mentioned, there's so many directions we could take this conversation, but um, but on face value and uh, and the way it's being covered uh, by now both the right and the left, um, how do you see the politics of this playing out? 
Well, that's a great question, and I think it really uh, depends. It depends on one key factor, and that is how long is this going to last? Does does the federal government, does the president's assurances that these deposits are insured solve the problem, and does it make it go away, essentially? Does it start to fade uh, into the background, and was this just a, a weird you know, three-day weekend hiccup in the banking system that nobody will remember in a few months? Or does this contagion kind of, you know, start to to, to spread and 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 you know make the rest of the economic or banking system sick? I, I there's a lot of banking questions that I have that are really fascinating. I think Donna did a really remarkable job of kind of explaining it. But politically, I think it all comes down to again whether or not this this just looks like a weird, peculiar weekend and this 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 hiccup, or uh, does this become a bigger problem? And, and the reason why is I don't think there could be a more politically juicy target than something named the Silicon Valley Bank. <laughs> I mean, if if it's going to piss <laughs> off people from the right or the left, you couldn't name it better in a Batman movie, right? It's like these, the, 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 nine, what was it, 94%, 95% of the deposits were over the, the $250,000 limit or something ridiculous like that. It's like th- these are not people that are viewed perception-wise, perception-wise, as people who need these dollars insured. Now, I know there's a million other people that employees that are that are handled through payroll of all these tech companies and such. But the optics of this, when the technology sector and when Silicon Valley specifically is increasingly drawing the ire of populist movements on the left, as Donna mentioned with Elizabeth Warren, with banking, and on the right, when you've got the you know Ted Cruz's and Josh Hawley's of the world who are increasingly antagonistic towards what they call big tech, it tells you that there's something that is not right, not left, but populist that is is really antagonistic towards not just the wealth that is generated in the Silicon Valley, but the technology that this, this wealth is financing to essentially oversee, look, and control people's lives. So, Again, politically, I think I think it's just it, it may have happened so quickly and happened so fast that it was just a quick speed bump and we hit something along the way and it was just kind of like whoa, what was that? But if it does become something bigger, if it does if it does uh, bleed out e- either into the larger economic system or banking system, or even if it's just a problem with this bank that doesn't get resolved in the coming days, I think the potential for this becoming quite politically explosive is significant. Yeah, on on the on the converse side of that, and which kind of goes along, I guess, with the with the political, is that there's increasing evidence that the um, crypto friendly banks were targeted, um, i.e., Silvergate and um, and Signature Bank. Signature Bank had a huge um, investor, not investor, uh, depositor base that was real estate, also a lot of law firms. So it's not a completely crypto bank. There are now um, uh, uh, circulating in 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 amongst the banking people that are potential takeovers for either Silicon or or the other bank that they won't allow you to have crypto clus- customers, and so we've seen this before with marijuana. We've seen it with other kinds of things. Um, I think that if a bank leave aside whether this, these banks were properly run, but the kind of customers that they have should not be the targets of whether you go in and seize these banks, um, whether granted Sil- Silicon Valley Bank had a run on the bank. But there was no evidence 
to the board of directors or to the management or any of the people on signature that there was anything wrong going on there in terms of the balance sheet or or otherwise. So they were quite surprised when, the, according to them, when the New York State DFS, uh, and it was not the federal government, went in and, and, and seized the bank. So I do think that irrespective of what political party you're at, you should be aware that um, ba- where you bank, how you bank, and what kind of business you're in is potentially targeted. And I don't think that that's a, a positive thing. And of course, that's why we saw a run-up in Bitcoin, because you can self-custody it and you can hold it. And this is exactly for the time that Bitcoin was, was built. So I'll leave it there for a second. Yeah, uh, Liz. Before before I uh, lay this at your feet, uh, we should note, Donna. Bitcoin for our listeners is not a placeholder for all digital crypto, all digit, all cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin is its own thing, separate from you should say the crypto industry. So when you say that, I just want to mark that you're talking about a very specific coin and not a broad category, as many people understand it. Um, the other thing is um, the they're piggybacking off of that point. Um, and this is to you, Liz, a lot of the way this came up in our editorial meeting, actually, and I got quite upset about it. Um, there's a lot of bad faith, uh, political rhetoric now around what's happening. And I, and I feel, um, bad for ordinary people who do not follow financial news and do not have access to the lexicon uh, that is used by more sophisticated reporters and journalistic outlets like Bloomberg and Financial Times uh, to really understand what's going on. And so you have an opportunity to characterize what's happening now as, oh, it's just those crypto people. They caused this um, to blame an entire industry when actually those were just the customers of a bank. Um, and and in Signature's case, actually, there was a voluntary wind down of their business model. It was not a failure, and it was not seized. Um, and so there's this opportunity for um, bad faith political actors to fill in the gaps of understanding and sort of abuse the ignorance of, of ordinary people who just put their money into like a, an ordinary regional bank. The other part of this that I'd love your thoughts on are how this is going to um, very likely accrue to the benefit of the big four or five financial institutions that are Wall Street based as fears about the security of ordinary deposits at regional banks are, are you cause people to pull their money out and put them in, for example, JP Morgan. Um, because these were, these were regional banks and, and, um, and so any, I worry about that as well. All of this really accrues to the benefit of the, of the big yeah banks on Wall Street that, uh, you know, so anyway, I'll leave that at your feet, but how are you yeah, thinking I'm, about the I'm politics? I'm glad case? you posed it in that way. Cause as Mike was talking and said, kind of the, the thing to watch here is the timing. And that's, that's the primary focus on, on knowing how this will have a political impact is how long is this going to take? Is it a speed bump or is it going to be something that dominates the narrative for many months or, you know, the upcoming quarters to come? Um, what I think both about the rhetoric and again, glad you posed this question is as Mike was talking about the timing, I was thinking it's all about the messaging that if this takes 
two days mm. to further explain or get through, or if it takes two months to further explain or get through. How are the American people understanding what's happening? Not everyone is waking up in the morning and reading Financial Times, like you said. And so I was actually pretty both pleased and impressed um, in, in President Biden's direct-to-camera address where I was reading an article and it says when a president, you know, is is talking about issues, mostly financial and economic, more so than almost anything else, they do not go off script. They have a very strict messaging portfolio put in front of them. They don't ad lib. They don't leave room for creativity. He went direct to camera and read exactly what he and his team had put together. And what impressed me by it is that the the part of the statement that has gotten maybe not the most headlines, but that I've seen the most is just in quotes, President Biden saying, your deposits are safe. And I think that was a very uh, savvy move done by the White House communications team to say, what is going to be kind of our little bit? What is our tagline? What is the thing that we want American people and voters, you know, again, people not reading Bloomberg every day, what do we want them to know after they either watch the address live or see something online talking about what the president said. And so he really got up there to assure um, security and to and to calm nerves. And that really is so much the, the job of the White House, especially in times like this. So for me, the thing to watch in addition to what Mike said about timing is definitely the messaging. Um, and, you know, I know we are talking about, uh, TikTok later in the episode, but how is something like this being distilled into bite-sized videos for kind of the average person to pay attention to, as they're saying, I, I left, you know, uh, one of the big four banks, or I, I wanted to go regionally. I wanted to go to a specialty bank, you know, community bank, regional bank, whatever it is. Was that a mistake? Do we wait? Do we give them the time? Or exactly what you said, Ron, I think, you know, that's the multi-billion dollar question. Is there going to be flight back to the more, let's call them established or well-known institutions because people are nervous? And so there's a lot to watch politically on this because if it's something that continues to, uh, you know, be in our news cycle for a very long time. I think it's going to take on a total metamorphosis as we're watching reactions and and big, you know, money moves again from that regional level to to the big four. Donna, one other thing you mentioned, um, which uh, bears expanding on just a little bit, is uh, is is the role of the Fed hiking rates so aggressively. Uh, over the last year, um, and even more recently, just before this uh, SVB failure and and the fallout since then, the Fed had just recommitted to continuing to do that. And even, I believe Powell, in some remarks just a couple of weeks ago, um, admitted that it's going to be rough or bumpy um, as they continue to hike rates. And other people have characterized the Fed's plan to hike rates as something like they're going to keep hiking until they break something and then they'll slow down and possibly even um, uh, start some quantitative easing again, uh, lowering lowering rates. Uh, so I wonder if you think uh, this means, is this going to give Jerome Powell a pause and uh, are they going to reconsider hiking as aggressively given the fundamental role it played in um, in in the value of U.S. Treasuries, which we know many banks hold, 
and their ability to hold them to maturity instead of having to sell them at a loss and, um, and create uh, more problems for the banking sector. Well, the irony, of course, of what happened in, in the last couple of, of days is that interest rates have gone down substantially, a huge move down in interest rates, which, of course, has the inverse effect on the portfolio of these bonds in that the prices went up. Um, and so they're more valuable than they were um, a, a week ago. Um, there is indication that he may pause um, the rate increases, but again, we know that one of his fights is inflation, and so that has not come down. And so there's this kind of between and betwixt. You know, can he short-term pause interest rates? Met some of the people have um, indicated that the messaging wasn't so great on um, the increases over the last year, and that maybe that would have enabled banks to better prepare. Also, there were some changes um, under the Trump administration in what banks were allowed to hold or not hold. Um, I don't know all of those details in it, but that also now has become a partisan issue. Some people saying, I voted for it. Some people saying, I didn't vote for it. Will you change your mind? Won't you change your mind? Et cetera, um, going on there. Of course, there'll be some um, committee hearings about all of this. Um, so I think Powell will will go cautiously, um, but I don't think he's going to abandon completely um, what he's going to do. I'm not a kind of soothsayer in 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 the Powell in the Powell world, um, but I do think that um, the regional banks will be the regional Fed banks will be a little bit more. Um, a cautious and observe and 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 diligent in observing the portfolios, and there are other op- options that the that the government can use in terms of lending against those portfolios. Um, uh, you know, in in the short term, so we'll see. I, you know, how much liquidity is put back in. J.P. Morgan has indicated um, that there's a lot of more, a lot more liquidity that the Fed is releasing at the moment. I do think the point you raise about the concentration of banks is um, is well worth thinking about. People have pointed to the smaller nation in terms of population, Canada, that they just have uh, core central banks, uh, like about five or so uh, big banks, big money center banks, and is that the way to go? I do think that a lot of regional um, uh, banking is is very good for you know a lot of people like it because they think it's very good for small businesses, for getting to know your banker, um, you know, you walk in and they know who you are um, and they feel more comfortable in the relationship between the bank and, and themselves and being able to talk about their needs than big money center banks that are often very, very difficult to open accounts at. So I'll leave it there for now. Mike, the last uh, sort of political piece of this I want to put to you, uh, we've talked a little bit about the, um, the 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 blame game that's been in full force in Washington. Uh, President Biden and lots of congressional Democrats have placed the blame on uh, former President Trump and his 2018 rollback of parts of the Dodd-Frank Act. Um, Biden called on Congress to strengthen banking rules, and he blamed Trump's deregulation during his speech on Monday. Um, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren both targeted the 2018 laws. Warren called for the laws to be repealed in an interview with Politico. It's worth noting uh, that in 2018, 17 Democratic senators voted for the deregulation bill, uh, by the way, and 10 of those 17 were up for re-election, including seven from the states Trump won. Um, but the other piece of this, Mike, is 
that after both the train derailment in East Palestine and the failure of SVB, Biden pointed to Donald Trump's deregulation. So I wonder how effective of a strategy you think that's going to be going toward 2024 for him. I think it gives more grist for the mill for partisans, but I don't think it does anything to move Republicans or other like-minded independents. This is just not the, uh, the, the whole philosophy of regulation versus deregulation is something that divides the, the two major parties still to this day. So to think that somehow, you know, pointing out that a party is, you know, arguably wrong on these policies is not, it's not persuasive. I mean, let's, I'm laughing because I'm, look, not wearing a mask and killing hundreds of thousands of people during COVID didn't work. Like, why would this work? Right. Like that's, that's just, that's not where, where people are at. And I'm not saying that that's not the way it should work. This is absolutely what the way policy, you know, the policymaking process should work. There absolutely should be a healthy political discussion amongst the public that creates pressure on both the Congress and the executive branch. But, but that's kind of, you know, in, in sixth grade civics classes is still, I think the last place where that, that type of thinking exists. Yeah. Do they teach civics in the sixth grade? <laughs> Liz is your bright, bright ray of sunshine there. <laughs> I don't think they. I don't think they teach civics. They definitely at all. don't, <laughs> which is something that you and I have talked about, kind of ad nauseum, uh, especially on this podcast. Yep. But um, I could not agree with Mike Moore, which is why I was chuckling that um, you know I was talking to um, my dad about this. Truly, you have the wrong wrong Gilbert uh, on on today as someone who's been in banking since <laughs> the eighties. We should you know it's, tell everybody what your dad does for context. Yeah, he has uh, been in banking for many many decades and at the highest levels. And he also was saying, you know, Trump trains banks. You know, he he is. Uh, he and and peers are you know <laughs> talking with that rhetoric of pointing to kind of where where you can where you can point to to say this is where a lot of this began but to mike's point what are voters paying attention to it is all about the messaging no one really you know, believes like when, when Trump was president and talking about all of these failures and, and how it was Obama's fault, or even when Biden became president and talking about Trump's fault, I mean, there's always finger pointing and it's, I think, exhausting to voters to figure out where something came from, um, and, and whose fault is it anyway? Um, and it's, it's very complicated, which is why I think president Biden, again, going direct to camera and saying, here's what's happening, he had to, I believe, give not just a little dig to, you know, potential um, opposition in, in the next election, you know, but he really, I think, had had to kind of explain where where some of these issues are are stemming from. I just don't know that that is something that that resonates, but I think it's a messaging that we'll we'll continue to see out of the White House and other Democratic leadership. On Friday, The Washington Post reported that a former TikTok employee met with congressional investigators to share his concerns that the company's plan for protecting user data from the United States is deeply flawed and that the app is lying about Chinese spying. This former employee worked for six months as the head of a unit within the safety operations team in the company's trust and safety division in early 2022. And he claimed that the issues with data storage and access could leave TikTok's more than 100 million U.S. users 
exposed to China-based employees of its parent company, ByteDance. And all of this comes as TikTok is working to implement new safety rules that would wall off domestic user information as part of a $1.5 billion restructuring plan known as Project Texas. Uh, TikTok's leaders have been trying to sell the plan in Washington as a way to neutralize their risk uh, of data theft or misuse by the Chinese government. But since 2019, TikTok and ByteDance have been negotiating with a group of federal officials known as the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, which is an interagency committee uh, that's authorized to review certain transactions that involve large um, large transactions uh, involving foreign uh, government, foreign investment in the United States and certain real estate transactions from foreign persons um, in order to determine the uh, the effect on U- U.S. national security. Uh, they've been ne- negotiating about privacy standards and technical safeguards they need to adopt to satisfy U.S. national security concerns. Um, the employee has also met with Senators Chuck Grassley and Mark Warner. Mark Warner and a bipartisan group of senators proposed a bill last week that would give the Commerce Department a direct path to banning TikTok and other apps uh, with, foreign owner, with foreign owners following a risk-based assessment. There's another bill advanced by the House Foreign Affairs Committee last week that would let President Biden ban TikTok outright. Uh, late last year, Congress passed a TikTok ban on federal government devices, uh, and that's along with state bans for government devices in over two dozen states. But a 2020 federal court ruling, civil civil libertarians um, and some congressional Democrats have argued that a nationwide ban would violate users' First Amendment rights. And then on Wednesday, the Wall Street Journal reported, and now NPR is reporting, that the Biden administration is demanding that TikTok's Chinese owners sell their stakes in the app or face a possible U.S. ban. Um, so, Mike, the question is, should we ban TikTok? Well, TikTok is the devil. <laughs> uh, if you have TikTok on your phone right now, <laughs> get it off. I, 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 look, this is the most successful, I think, phone application uh, maybe in the history of mankind. Like, everybody is on TikTok. I'm not, by the way. So it's easy for me to say get rid of it. But but I will say this, <laughs> the difference between the Russians and the Chinese is best explained by TikTok and their aggressive posture towards the United States. The Russians, for example, were using platforms to buy ads and place ads to motivate voters one way or the other and to cause disruption in democracy. The Chinese strategic you know, imperatives are different. They literally create entire platforms so that they can swallow all of us at one big moment. That's what that's what TikTok is, okay? That's what it's designed to do. So should it be banned? It should absolutely be banned to the extent that we can uh, by law, by the, that's permissible by law. And I think that that's what we're trying to find the way to do and the aims to get towards. But let me say, make this very clear. TikTok is a national security threat. I'm absolutely convinced of that. And it's not just TikTok. It's going to be a whole host of other platforms, but they are all going to branch out of everything that is procured from TikTok. So I know you're all hooked on it. I know you like watching videos late at night. Uh, I will say this, it, it, what it's what it's the data that it's sucking out of your phones uh, and onto platforms from nefarious foreign actors is is being used. It was literally designed to be used as a threat against the United States of America. That is not an overstatement. That is what TikTok is. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a hard reality to face if, uh, if, if you're addicted to the videos, but I 
completely endorse that um, that that view. Liz, um, within the last few months, uh, TikTok has hired the public affairs firm SKDK. And if you don't live inside the Beltway, um, uh, you may not be familiar with SKDK, but they have very strong ties to the Biden administration and many other Democrats in Washington. In addition to Biden's 2020 race, they have consulted on six presidential campaigns, numerous congressional races. Um, and one of the founding partners, Anita Dunn, is currently serving as a senior advisor in the Biden White House. There are other former SKDK employees in communications roles in the in the Biden administration. So it's not an exaggeration when I say uh, strong ties. That's that's pretty obvious on its face. But TikTok's move with SKDK isn't too unusual in Washington, right? Lots of foreign countries and companies, foreign and domestic, do business with firms close to influential politicians. Uh, it is it is status quo, um, a move like this. Um, the Podesta Group is another example. Uh, and there were obviously controversies around that uh, when John Podesta was in the White House and his brother Tony Podesta was running the Podesta Group. And so um, the question is, how should voters evaluate these relationships? It's a really good question, and I'm smiling along because I don't know how SKDK takes on TikTok as a client. If I were in the Biden administration at at a high level um, where this is a conversation to be had, I would say to them, if you are taking this on, we are not we are not going to continue our relationship with you. I mean, to Mike's point about it being a national security threat, it, it's it's without question. If you worked on the Biden uh, campaign, you were not permitted to have TikTok on your phone. Like they have been taking this very seriously, even from campaign days. And for some of those folks to go from the campaign back to their jobs at SKDK or what have you, and then try and you know, lobby on, on TikTok's behalf, it just doesn't jive in my brain yet. So I don't really know how it's happening and what's happening and what they are thinking, taking on this client. Um, I understand how lobbying and government affairs works as someone who, who is, is in that space myself. But I also understand that in DC, amongst many other places, your relationships are your currency and you don't threaten those for a really, nice size retainer. You just don't. And so if I'm in the administration, I'm saying to this firm, many of the individuals who work there with whom we have, you know, again, speaking as if I were in the admin, you have very good relationships with this firm. I I would kind of say to them, what, what the heck are you guys thinking? That's not, you know, and that's a very DC in the loop conversation and relationship and, and all that stuff. But, um, this is an administration, again, since campaign days that has seen TikTok as a significant threat. And I don't think they're going to budge on this, not even a little bit. Yeah. It's also interesting uh, because SKDK dropped Starbucks over its unionization fights. Um, uh, but, but Mike, I think there's a difference here or let me put it this way. Do you think there's a difference and how would you characterize the difference between, uh, for example, SKDK taking on a major U.S. corporation versus a foreign-owned corporation? And how should voters be thinking about those two things differently when it comes to influence in government? In well, it's not new for lobbying entities to uh, either take on or drop clients when the philosophy of that client doesn't match 
the ideology of the of the base of its client base. So to, so to drop Starbucks because of its anti-union posture, that's that's not new. That's typical. Not, not many big firms, Democratic firms, work for Walmart, for example. Um, but but what I will say is this: um, we are at a time when it, it, you know working for, for foreign governments, which is which is what TikTok is, by the way. TikTok is a it's a Chinese yeah, government yeah. owned company. I mean that is tapping all of our data in a way that the United States government isn't even at least as far as we know procuring data. Like it's 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 shocking that we're permitting the the Chinese an aggressive country of an aggressor nation where we're the, the war drums are are pounding and have been for months and are getting louder in the South China Sea. And we are allowing this this to to go on. It it is shocking to me. It is no different than having Russian oligarchs hiring GOP lobbying firms to gain access. There is no quantifiable difference. That's what this is. That's what this means. And when they're getting that close to the Oval Office with some of the access points, paying these you know ridiculous six figure a month retainers. To, to people with this kind of yank, it, it, it's it's deeply concerning because it's not just a big payday, although that is a big part of it. That's the incentive. We're talking about very significant national security threats, okay? That's how the Russians got as close to not only our government, but that's how they were essentially compromising the German government. That's how they were compromising a lot of these Western democracies in NATO with the sole intent of trying to limit the, the, these democracies from coalescing, from governing, and from jo- joining the United Front when they invaded Ukraine. Why do we think it's any different with the Chinese? The answer, hint, hint, it's not. That 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 is what they're doing. The one thing that I did want to add about SKDK, because I can only imagine the conversations that are happening within those conference rooms, is that maybe somebody there or the leadership there believes that perhaps there is a role for them to play in trying to figure out not just how to ban, not, not how to ban the app, but can they be helpful in coming up with middle ground? And so maybe they are taking on this fight, which is the fight of a firm's lifetime, right? To say, we're going to come in and we, because of our close relationships to the administration, we are going to take this on and see what we can do to find a middle ground um, because, and I don't know if this is where you're going next, Ron, but I'm just going to add a a marker here. If Joe Biden gets rid of TikTok before a possible re-election campaign, I can see the ads now. It's going to be talking about his overreach of your privacy. It's going to talk about he took away your livelihood. I mean, TikTok is how people have become influencer celebrities, how some people make their living. Um, Again, I can just see the ads now, even though there is bipartisan support to get rid of the app, potentially if this is something that happens before the next presidential campaign, which is much closer than, than we're all talking about right now, I think it will really, you know, it's not a losing issue. It's not, you know, the final nail in the coffin, but it's something that will speak to voters that he probably doesn't have right now. They'll talk about how he's old and out of touch and doesn't understand TikTok because 
Gen Zers, to my knowledge, are not focused on Chinese national security. Like it's not, it's not the the issue of the day for them. And so getting rid of TikTok is a really, I think, volatile political issue. And so potentially SKDK saying, we're going to try and, and help him navigate this. So I don't know, just, just other thoughts. Okay. I think, uh, you know, I think, you know, TikTok, the politics over the TikTok, uh, uh, ban or posturing might play out that way, but I don't think that China is that issue. And if if this is if this is presented to voters, especially right leaning voters, as a move against China, I think that accrues to um, Biden's benefit. But where I was going to go next is, um, you know, the the journal is also reporting that uh, CIFIS, which I mentioned earlier, uh, this interagency. Um, uh, body recently made the demand that they sell. And I'd say recently because representatives from the Pentagon and Justice Department on the, on that panel were among those pushing for the forced sale. So the question, I guess, Mike, is what this change uh, from Biden could mean. Um, and given that we don't have perfect information here about national security, there is very possibly uh, new things that they are learning about TikTok and about the model and about the data that they have access to that are causing them to um, take a more aggressive stance toward TikTok. So, you know, like there, there are things that we don't know that are happening now in this investigation um, and in this negotiation that are, that are leading to this posture, yes. right? It is not yes, a- it's not a, look, look, uh, <laughs> let me, let me, I, I want to I say this like with thunder and lightning so people listen to what is going on here. Okay. First of all, Liz is exactly right. That's exactly the conversation that's happening at SKDK, right? It's the same exact conversation that all the Republican firms on K Street were having when Trump became president and were like, well, maybe we can help be the adults in the room. And you start to rationalize that crazy ass behavior when you're yep. pulling in $300,000, $450,000 a month retainer. That's what's going on. It, it, they're not going to be helpful. They're not. They're not going to. There's no lobbying firm in America that is going to be able to mitigate what the Chinese created this entire platform to do. That's yep. one. Okay. <laughs> Two. Yes. The fact that it's starting to spill over the cup, and we're starting to realize what is going on with what the Chinese are doing, is 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 a sign that it's it's already happened. It's already that deep. It's already on like 90% of phones or something like that. And the irony is Americans are worried about (laughs) Chinese spy balloons floating over, right, with bad wind patterns. Like, that's what you're worried about while you're making TikTok videos of the damn balloon flying over your house. That's the problem. Like, we are literally monitoring the movement of their own damn balloon for them because they're watching this on their analytics on TikTok, Right, it's like it's the ultimate <laughs> Trojan horse move for the for the digital age. Oh, and man. then and then when you take into account the fact that it's not just the 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 the, the espionage that we're finding, but there are now whistleblowers coming out saying, uh, "Yeah, everything that you've been worried about TikTok, hey, yeah, for, they are for the last three or four years. It's far worse than you think it is. Like that, that's what the Washington Post article was." Like at what point do we say okay? Right. Like we're we're all hooked on this platform. Look, if we if we we've been all been screaming about Facebook's guardrails and not limiting Russian influence, yeah. okay? Who's going to stop the guardrails at TikTok? 
They, they own the guardrails. Yeah. That's the whole point. Is it's not that they they're own guardrails. Yeah, they're not. And, they're not putting the bad messaging onto another platform like Facebook. They are the platform. That's the whole point. And going to young people that don't care about Chinese yeah. and geo, you know, politic, political, you know, dynamics is exactly why you go to that weak point. That's exactly why you do it. And that's what's horrifying about what's going on. There's one other political reality here that we would be remiss if we didn't at least touch on, which is that a ban on TikTok could hurt Democratic campaigns because turnout among younger voters was up in the last three election cycles. 2018 saw the highest midterm turnout for voters under 30 in the last 30 years. Uh, and that's according to NPR. 2022 comes in at second. The Wall Street Journal reported that consultants from both major political parties pointed to TikTok as a key to reaching those younger voters. And one consultant told the journal that banning the app before the next election cycle would be, quote, politically insane. This is a threat to national security. I'm obviously very hopped up about this because it's not, this is not a partisan thing. And if it does hurt Democrats, then so be it. Get Democrats quit, quit advocating for the Chinese Communist Party. Okay, that's what's going on. Look, and young people are extraordinarily adaptable. If this app goes away, in 72 hours, there's going to be another platform that people are going to be using. Let's not kid ourselves, okay? So it's not like TikTok is 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 the central uh, uh, um, mechanism in perpetuity. It is now at the moment, but how many of these platforms have we gone through over the past decade? There are adjustments. Trust me, I do this for a living. There are ways to communicate to these voters. Just because it's the main pathway now doesn't mean that it will be in 18 months. That's just not the case. I un- I unfortunately believe because of how of how the American psyche works that um, there is not going to be a pox on TikTok's house until something obviously bad happens like this slow drip of a a constant national security threat living on your phone as an app day in and day out, isn't going to get people to move. Here's what, here's what one of the major issues is, is the Biden administration can go forth and do something about this and work, you know, with a bipartisan bill, blah, blah, blah. You still have many leaders of the Democratic Party elected or not still using the platform. For example, if the Obama Foundation is using the TikTok platform to talk to people about what the foundation is doing and the work they're doing, people will say, well, if former President Obama is okay using it, what's the problem? You have you have celebrities, you have influencers, you have other politicians, you have people who are who have not bought into the narrative, the the justified and correct narrative that this is a massive national security threat and a problem that has to be addressed. I don't believe that we're going to see this like one fell swoop of let's get rid of it. Let's make a change until something bad happens. Maybe that's gloom and doom. But I think to Mike's point, the bad is happening consistently, constantly, every single day. But it's like until there is cancel culture around TikTok, until TikTok is officially canceled, I don't I don't know what progress there's going to be. Um and and that's a really scary thing. Well, Mike titled the episode TikTok is the devil. So, there's there's that. Okay, now that we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories, 
this week. Let's talk about what we're watching. Mike, what'd you bring to the party? I'm actually just watching something that's happening right now because it's happening right down the street from me that's making me very nervous. There was an 18-wheel uh, rig that just ran into a federal office building in downtown Sacramento. And so the whole area has been cordoned off, and we're just getting breaking news on it as to whether or not it appears to be an intentional um, um, effort because that you can't mistakenly uh, – you know the way the way they've barricaded federal office buildings. You can't mistakenly, you know, run into a federal office building anymore. So uh, it's very, very breaking news. But sorry, it's kind of consumed all my mental capacity at the moment, except for TikTok, which I'm still very animated. Yeah. About. <laughs> except, for, except, yeah. I, your eyes were a little bit wider when we were talking about TikTok. <laughs> Go ahead, Liz. What do you got? Um, I, I regret to say it because I hate when this is what I'm watching, but but. Donald Trump and what what additional information is coming out about just how um, corrupt and awful and horrible and messed up he has been and continues to be. Um, I, I saw this morning, I don't know if it was posted yesterday or just earlier today, but that the Fulton County investigators have an audio recording of a phone call that the former president made to the Georgia House Speaker, um, pushing for a special session to overturn Biden's victory. And I, I think Ooh. having another recording at this time amongst everything else that has been happening with Trump, um, you know, people are, people are convinced that this is how the man goes down and other people are still convinced that he's uh -huh. untouchable. I think I'm somewhere in between, but to have another audio recording um, which hasn't been released yet. So we don't have the exact transcript, but calling the Georgia house speaker, pushing for a special session, specifically to overturn the victory. I mean, as soon as we hear his own voice, if they ever do release the audio, um, it just continues to be more damning and more damning. And I'm watching with bated breath to see what comes next. Yeah. So the audio is not out yet. No, mm -mm, but uh, could be by okay. the time this airs. Okay. So at at this time, yeah. at this yeah. very moment, not yet, but um, they, they yeah. did confirm um, that they, that they do have another recording, another call. <sighs> okay. Um, all right. Well, before we flip over to Politicology Plus, uh, where we're going to talk about this fight in the Republican party over Ukraine, um, where can everybody find you on the internet? Mike now, are you on Mastodon? Is that what you're on doing? On TikTok at... Tic <laughs> 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 you can... <laughs> You can find me. You can find me on Mastodon at Mike Madrid at ci.m. Oh God, you guys, the deadpan on Mike's face was just was was so good. Liz, what do you got? Well, since the only place I'm allowed to watch videos now is on Instagram uh, and, and no longer TikTok, I'm on I'm on Instagram at Liz Gilbert Cohen. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.